Okay. Questions from this passage. Let me start with any questions about the week. Because I know I've, I've hit that again. Um, John's week. Yes, Lee. Okay, I I actually wrote down as you went around down and then we get to once again I'm in chapter two and it says on the third day does that mean like Tuesday or Wednesday or something no so it's the third day like the resurrection is on the third well look because the only place there's touch questionable chronology is after day three so what do we know for certain we know for certain day one is the day when verse 19 the Jews sent people from Israel to question right day two then is 29 the next day behold the Lamb of God day three is the old Lamb of God, now two disciples go to Jesus. So if the third day would have to be that day, Jesus here does not have a band of disciples following him. He's meeting his first two disciples. So the third day would be something like, and three days later, on the third day in that sense. Okay, so yeah, you've explained that before. Sorry, yeah. sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's the third day. And now three days later, this. Um, that's what the third day means. Because there's no possible way... The place where someone, like I was talking with Daniel, you don't have to see a day implied at the end of 39. I think there is one. I think they stayed with him that night implies new day, but he doesn't state the next day. So I, I think there's pretty clearly a, a, a line there. So, so, but any ambiguity in the, the first three days, there's no ambiguity. It's when, the next day, the next day. So there's no question day three cannot be when it says on the third day, that third day. So it means something like, and then three days later, um, three days after this. So, yeah. No, no, fair, fair question. Fair question. But like I said, depending on how you number it, you can end up with six or eight or seven. I, I tend to think seven, but um, other than the connection with Genesis, nothing depends upon it being six or eight. And even there, if the, if the connection with Genesis is just a sequence of days, you still have a connection with Genesis. So it, nothing really depends on it being seven. I, I call it a week because it's simpler, but I wouldn't argue with it if someone said it's six or it's eight. Um, so yeah. Okay. Any other questions about the week? Okay. Any questions about Behold the Lamb of God? This is going to be a pretty boring ABF. Okay. Timothy. <laughs> Timothy. I just had kind of an observation about the the original Passover ritual of taking a lamb into your house yeah. for uh, on the tenth day and then slaughtering yeah. it on the fourteenth day in those four days. And you, I just imagine for people with kids, you know, like that first Passover. Hey, cool! The lamb is getting to stay inside. No, this cool. Like you said, you endear become endeared to it. Yeah. But imagine the second year mm. when when the kids are like, wait, what? <laughs> Are we going to, you know, it would be four days of ominous, you know, what are we going to have to do to this lamb? And I just think both of those are good pictures for us, you know, to understand, you know, to, to have the childlike endearment of our Savior, you know, and then to realize the reality of his crucifixion. And then also mm -hmm. the more mature, experienced, you know, effect of knowing, man, 
you know, my sins are going to kill this thing. You know, it, yeah. the, the sacrifice is necessary because of me. And anyway, it's just very, it's such powerful imagery, both versions of it. And, uh, well, and it's, it's bloody and it's immediate. You can't distance yourself from it. You, even if you're rich, you can't hire someone to go do it for like your hand shall be on its neck. I mean, you want to really press it. You're going to feel it shudder as its life goes out of it. You're going to yeah. be the one to kill it. You know, no matter how poor you are, how rich you are, you have to do this. Um, this, I mean, like I said, some of the sacrifices, they're swap outs. So we know, like, we know when Mary and Joseph offer the sacrifice for the, for, for uh, J- Jesus, they use the poor person's sacrifice, indicating there's like two tiers. If you can afford it, X. If you can't afford it, you can do Y. Here, if you can't afford it, find some other people who can't afford it and get a lamb. There's no swapping out. It's going to be a lamb or a goat. I mean, the, they seem to view lambs and goats as pretty similar or interchangeable, at least there. But yeah, it's, uh, you're going to do this. Everybody's do this from the top down. No distinction between the very rich and the very poor. You want your sin taken away. You need to get a lamb and you need to kill it. And you need to, I mean, it's ugly, you know, it's. And in that culture, right? So the Passover was annual from then on, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, the statements, behold the lamb of God. I mean, that would have resonated with everybody two years old and older. I mean, just what a powerful important yeah. you know either either you're right or you're a heretic <laughs> right you know right, you can't right. you can't use that lightly right, right. But anyway it, yeah just and, and part of why i went through the that connection starting with starting with abraham and isaac and then going to pass over the noise 53 like i said i have no idea how much of that john had put together and i certainly don't think the people who heard him put it all together because in john's gospel we're going to see again and again and again the disciples don't understand they don't understand in fact in chapter two when he said destroy this temple in three days i'll raise it up his disciples did not understand this but after he'd been raised from the dead they remembered and believed so when this is happening i'm not sure how much people are putting together john writing in his 90s he's put it together and so when this gospel is being written i think Certainly for the people reading the gospel, those connections are in place. Paul's already written, Christ our Passover lamb. Peter, you were, you were redeemed, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but by the spotless lamb. It's even possible the gospel of John is written after Revelation. Possible. Um, so those, those connections and pictures have, I think, clearly been made by the time this gospel's written, which is why I thought it was valid to unpack it here. Even though in the event of John the Baptist saying this, I doubt many people had put many of those dots together clearly yet. I mean, they might've, but yeah. Any other questions? I got places we can go, but Renee. The passage where Mary, um, the wedding into wine. And I always wondered about that, where he said, woman, it is not yet my time. We'll get there in a few weeks. Oh, we didn't actually talk about that today. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll touch it. I'll touch okay. it, sure. <laughs> we're, only, we're only covering 129 to 31. You're in chapter two. So, so sometime in the new year, we'll get there. And no, <laughs> no. The, the, what I compare it with is um, the event at the wedding of the wine and Jesus' response to his mother is very similar to Jesus' response to his brothers in, in chapter 7. Both events have, share a lot of similarity. In both events, a family member is provoking or suggesting Jesus do something, to, and Jesus' response is something on the lines of, it's not my hour, it's not my time. And yet, in both situations, Jesus does the thing they ask him to do. It's odd. So his brother's like, go up publicly. 
you're a big deal. Why don't you just go public? And he's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And then he goes up secretly. And Mary says, they're out of wine. He's like, what, what's, what's that to me? And then he makes wine, but he does it secretly. I, th- I think the two of those help interpret each other what's going on. We'll, we'll get to it. But, but the strength, the force of woman, um, there, there's, a, there's a Hebrewism which doesn't translate well into English. It's something like, what you to me? And what it's saying is, what is there between us that you think is... Be- you, this re- is basically denying there's an appropriate relationship to support the request. Um, how is that any of my business, you might say. And there's a certain amount of offense to it because you're, Mary thinks there's some connection here. And Jesus is like, no. Um, yet it's not as rude as woman. I mean, we hear woman and we, we immediately, our, our, our uh, bristles go up. That's not nearly as offensive. It's just gune. Um, in, but the what the you to me is definitely, I, I'm not seeing the connection between us that you're seeing between us. It, it's questioning that. That's definitely got some mild level of offense. Now, I think Mary's response shows she takes it. She just says to the servants, okay, whatever he says, do it. I mean, so, so Mary takes the rebuke. I mean, the mild rebuke, but there's definitely, some, well, that's all I'll say for now. We'll get there. Okay. Um, okay. And he, uh, Simeon. Um, did you, I guess this is kind of me poking the bear a little bit. Um, is world the whole world or is it mean a more specific group of people? So, so John's use of world varies cosmos um at the end of the gospel he used world simply a very large place if all the things jesus had said or done were written i suppose the whole world would not be large enough for it Um, most commonly world means the world in opposition to god Uh, that's how it's used in 110 he came to his own he came to the world the world did not know him Um, that's how it's used i think in john 3 16 for god so loved the world the, the contrast isn't God's love was for so many people, but God's love was against his enemy. God's love was against that which hated them, the darkness. The world is pit against the light, and that's how the framing in 19 is going to show up. Um, here, I think the emphasis is simply beyond the Jews. Um, I, I, um, I don't see any reason to take it to be more than... It's a lamb not just for Israel's lamb, but it's the lamb of the whole world. Uh, Augustine puts it this way. You think of, um, you, this is the village blacksmith. He's the blacksmith for the village. Now, not everybody uses the blacksmith services, but the point is, there's one blacksmith, and if you live in this village, you need something smith, you go to him. This is the lamb of takes away the sin of the world. You need your sin dealt with. There is one lamb for the world to deal with. I mean, otherwise, what, you're, otherwise what you'd have to say is universal salvation, because the statement, the declaration is not potentiality. It's he does, takes away the sin. It's not he can take away, which would be subjunctive. Um, this, is, this is indicative, verb mood. So unless you want to say Jesus does in fact take away the sins of everybody, in which case there are no sins reigning because they're all paid for, um, then I think the, the most straightforward reading is simply the whole world as opposed to the Jews. So, um, no, fair, fair question, but... Yeah, I, I think it just means that. Brenda. Yeah, you gotta have the microphone. <coughs> Our five loyal podcast listeners insist. 
Well, first thing I want to say is it is so fun to be in here. I haven't been in here for almost two years, and this Woo. is wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for all the prayers. Anyway, I think it is so cool for knowing that John probably wrote John after Revelation, and John was able to see, be with Jesus, and then he can write, because he's seen the whole picture. How rich does that make the book of John? Yeah. Yeah, I just think that is so cool. If, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to me to, if the possibility, I mean, we can't be certain, but the possibility that John the, God, John the Evangelist <laughs> wrote what John the Baptizer said if he'd already seen and written Revelation 5. That's going to add a whole new dimension to the Lamb of God um, th that is going to inform this. And so, who knows? It's, it's entirely, but certainly we know because we get, we get them all together in one book. So we don't even get them in a sequence. We just, you get your Bible and it's got Revelation and it's got John. And so, um, no, whether or not John got that later or not, we can put those pieces together and see um, not only is, is the Old Testament predicting this, but the New Testament and even the last place we see Christ, it's his crowning glory. What does the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquered look like? He looks like a lamb who was slain. And in that visage, he is praised by all of creation. I mean, everything in the air and in the water and under the earth and just the entire universe is just praising this slain lamb. It's the height of his glory. And so, yeah, I mean, and tying it back with we've beheld his glory, you put that all together. This is the centerpiece of Christ's glory is his suffering, sacrificing lambness, even as he conquers and overcomes. And so, yeah, John the Baptist has no idea what's coming after him to say this even. But we look at that and we're like, yeah, that's, that is, that's partly, I mean, we're just going to cover that phrase today and a little bit like a phrase afterwards, but, you know, um, I thought there was enough enough meat on the bone to, to warrant it. So, um, yeah. Okay. Don Carpenter. In, uh, as Jesus is coming towards him, it would seem to me that that's a, a very personal identification of who he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and yet nobody does anything until the next day? Just thought that was weird. <laughs> well, we also don't know how many people were around him. I mean, it's, I, I didn't mention this, but John isn't declared to witness to anybody. For all we know, nobody heard John say this. This is John's declaration at Jesus coming towards him. The next day, again, yeah, look at 35. Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. Well, so the difference is Jesus is walking towards him. In the first instance, Jesus is walking by. We're told there's other people. So we're assuming there's this big audience, but maybe, maybe not. Or maybe there is sort of an audience, but people don't know what to make of it. They're going to wait and see. I mean, I don't get any, I don't get any implication. Because of how quickly John has Jesus pick up disciples and get these confessions, I don't read anything in here suggesting there being lethargic, slow to act, hesitant, that these guys, as soon as they're spending time with Jesus, are just responding with Christological titles that are massive, right? So I, I don't know why they didn't go the first time he said it, but John doesn't tell us there was a big audience. So we, we don't know who heard him say this. We get to see it happen, um, but no, no, it's, I don't know. It's a fair point. I don't know. 
Anything else? Okay, I'll, I'll talk about something then. Um, yeah, like I said, I was frustrated in reading commentaries just how many pages. You either got guys saying there's no way on earth John the Baptist ever said this, and this is clear evidence of the later church trying to put this stuff back in, or you've got guys who are aware of that trying to defend it and downplay it, which was just frustrating. Um, John, what John's doing, if you remember, why did John write his gospel? Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written that you might that Jesus is the, the Son of God, and by believing in your life in his name. John is started with a prologue where he's declared Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the Christ. He then puts it in the mouth of John the Baptist. Here's another line of witness. John the Baptist is going to bring another line of evidence in, starting in our next chunk. Look, um, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So 32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So, so right out of the gate, at the beginning of this gospel, John the Evangelist is his own declaration. John the ba- and notice the repetition of John said this. It wasn't John just said this stuff once. John was saying this stuff all the time. That also might be in part the behold the Lamb of God. This wasn't just one thing he said once. He said it at least once with an audience, with witness. Um, and then John testifies the Holy Spirit's witness and testimony which is ultimately going to show up in John chapter 5, where Jesus talks about the lines of evidence supporting his claim. So John is, one of the things John is doing in light of his thesis, that he might compel, convince, settle any doubts in our minds that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. And I argued that in John's gospel, Christ is the sin-bearing sacrifice. Son of God is, he's divine, he's, he's God. Um, his deity and his sacrificial Lamb of Godness, or the two things he wants us to come to believe, well then you can see how at the beginning of his gospel he's bringing huge lines of to substantiate those claims. And so, so John is, 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 this is what John the Baptist said plainly and repeatedly and people heard him say. Um, so it's, it's frustrating to me reading some commentators who are spending so much time trying to apologize for what John said. John tells us he only knows this because God revealed it to him. And yeah, later in his life, he doubts, and he's not sure, if, are you really the Messiah? Should I look for someone else? But man, I've, I've had peaks where I've confessed profound truth, and other times where I've doubted it. I mean, give, give the guys a, some slack. It's the same thing people with, with Mary, you know, Mary gets the angel telling her, but later, you know, your father and I are looking for you. Well, can you not sympathize that this woman, even though she was told who the child would be, began to feel like a protective mother in time? Of course she did. Which is why the rebuke is mild. Didn't you know anything about my father's business? I'm sure that stung a little bit. You know, I got I got another parentage that's more concerning to me than you. But you know, um, we we go on. These people are human. But here, John is clearly the prophet, and John is speaking. I think probably better than he knows. I don't, I don't see any real issue with it. It's just so many writers. Have, have a hard time with how much he's put together. I mean, out of John's mouth, you've got, he's a sacrifice dealing with sin. He's preexistent and divine. He's, <laughs> I mean, John has put, but those are again, the two things John, the gospel writer wants us to believe. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. And what's John the Baptist testifying to? He's the Christ. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he is preexistent. I mean, it, it, when you look at it from John's narrative structure, it's perfect. 
I'm writing this so you'll believe these two things about Jesus. And he starts right out with the last Old Testament prophet testifying to those two things about Jesus. So if you, if you take the gospel of John on its own terms, there's no problems. It fits together perfectly. Only if you're suspicious of any of these claims and only if you're convinced the church didn't come up with the deity of Jesus till the fourth century, are you going to come back and try to reread it. But if you come at it and take it on its own terms, it fits and flows and makes perfect sense. But hey, that's just me. Um, any questions with any of that? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay. Okay. Any other questions? You guys are really bad. While, while you go, I'll make a plug. Uh, that song, that special music song we did... That's an Andrew Peterson song, and it's probably my favorite Christmas album. It's not very Christmassy, but it's, it's a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb. And I highly recommend that you can pick it up on Amazon or iTunes or whatever services you use. But um, it's, it's a great Christmas album. Um, so I commend it to you. Okay. Anything else? Yes. So you touched on this a little bit, um, and, and like just just now, but yeah. like a lot of textual critics look at John and they kind of like throw it out because the Christology of it is so developed. developed. Yeah. Um, how how would you respond to somebody who who said that? It's it's all if you if your starting assumption is that church didn't come up to the deity of Christ until the fourth century, and Jesus was a revolutionary who taught. Uh, humanitarian ethic, and then the Apostle Paul, or better yet, the Apostle Paul's followers hijacked Christianity. If those are your starting assumptions, well, you're going to have a really hard time with the Christology of John, right? Um, but if if you don't start with... There's a sense in which, yeah, if, if you start convinced these things aren't true, surprise, surprise, you're not going to conclude these things are true. Um, I, I think there's ample evidence that the the claims of Jesus' deity were around from the beginning. Um, one of the things that's remarkable, do you know what gospel we have our, do you know what, P52, yeah. It's one of the few things I know. So papyri 50, this is, this is amazing. So the oldest fragment of the New Testament that we have is a postage stamp size fragment of the gospel of John, which dates to about 125 AD, papyri 52, give or take maybe 10 years. Um, given that I argued that I don't think John's gospel is written until the 80s or 90s, we got a fragment of John within 30 years of the composition. In other words, not enough time for legends to arise. Um, moreover, the fragment we have is double-sided. And so based on that, we can figure out, and we know what size the original page is. James White has got a fascinating article, and he's actually talked with us at length. You can look it up. Elsa can link you to it, I'm sure. Um, and uh, he, uh, from it, so we can get the size of the handwriting. And because we know the size of the original page, we can then estimate, is what's on the back of Papyrus 52 what we'd expect to be on the back of it? Yes, it is. So something, some version of John's gospel existed within 30 years of its composition. Like that one find alone throws out the window about 400 volumes of German neoliberalism that just starts with John was written in the fourth century in Alexandria. Well, apparently not. 
with something that looks an off, and it's exactly word for word what we'd have. It's, granted, we only have a little, it's only a little window, but it'd be kind of like if somebody had like a screenshot of a quarter of a page and then quarter of the next page. It, the little screenshot we have is exactly what we have. Exactly. Um, so John's gospel in some form existed within 30 years of when we said it was written. So now I think the burden of proof is on the person arguing for corruption to show that and less of starting with that assumption. So, um, yeah, looking up, so lower, lower, so, okay, you've mentioned criticism. There's higher and lower textual criticism, and you don't need to worry about this too, too much, except to say lower criticism, I think, is good, fine, and great, and higher criticism is usually ungodly and idolatrous. Lower criticism simply asks the question, what is the text? What did John write? The, the, the Greek text that we base our New Testament off of is a, is a hybrid of us making decisions comparing thousands of Greek New Testaments. We've got about 5,000 or so Greek. When you throw in um, other translations, uh, we got about 25,000 texts that we use. Um, and so the Greek text we arrive at is not identical to any one of those. And the, so this is called lower criticism, comparing these texts. And, and, and the reason we can be really confident with our Greek um, text is that if you guys were all trying to word for word take down what I said for the next 10 minutes, and if I spoke more slowly, um, uh, then you could imagine that not one of you had a perfect copy of what I said, but you all would not err at the same place, at the same time, and in the same way. And so let's just say we have... 100 people writing down what I say, and we're going through it, and 95 of them have me say one thing, and of the five differing ones, they differ in differing ways. Seems far, far more likely that the 95 got it right than that 95 people all made a mistake, the exact mistake, and in the exact place. So we're doing the same sort of thing. So lower criticism, trying to deal with what is the text, we have to do. We got to figure that out. So there's some spots. There's a textual variance and significant variance and, and, and things like that. And some of your Bibles have little footnotes saying things like that. Some older texts say. Higher criticism is the attempt to get behind the text into what was the community doing for the composition. Usually higher criticism starts assuming John didn't write this. So for instance, uh, most of the the most of the stuff written that P fifty two destroyed was the assumption that I've already mentioned to you how John uses the term the Jews in a negative pejorative sense. Um, the people in Jerusalem were afraid to confess Jesus as the Christ because of the Jews. Well, aren't they all Jews? So. The assumption was then that higher critics come along and say, see, this is evidence that John was written in the fourth century when the tensions between the church and the Jewish community was high. And we can see from John writing this that that's going on. And that sounds all good till you find a fragment of John from 125 AD. Guess not. So higher criticism is much more asking questions to get behind the text, usually with the assumption that the text we have has been edited, re-edited, re-edited some more, and then trying to figure out that editorial process. This is the type of stuff that if you've ever heard of the Jesus Seminar, super liberal. These are guys who are trying to figure out what are the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels do they really think are authentic? And like, surprise, surprise, like one out of 20? I mean, it's ridiculous. These, as they're cutting through this, we think, and it's totally subjective. The arrogance of thinking that 2,000 years from the source of writing, we can somehow depict and pick out um, the voice of the authentic Jesus from the text, the, the amount of arrogance and hubris 
and the chronological snobbery. Do we think everyone in the second, third, fourth century are idiots, but we alone are wise? But that, that type of... If, if you're interested in this topic at all, C.S. Lewis has a great, great essay called Elephants and Fernseed, which I recommend to you. Um, it's, it's humorous. Um, but yeah, C.S. Lewis in his complains about this in that essay. He talks about how um, he'll read, he read, you guys know C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia stories. Um, and C.S. Lewis talks about how he'd read reviews of, from people who, and one of his complaints is these reviewers didn't review his book, rather they tried to psychoanalyze his mental state that caused him to write it. The same thing, no, he knows the same thing happens with Tolkien. Clearly the ring, the power that is so great that no one can wield, it has to be a picture of the nuclear bomb and the atomic, you know, the, the mushroom cloud ring. And Lewis goes on, he says, it makes all sorts of sense, it's clever, the, the only disadvantage it has is it's not true. Tolkien had envisioned the ring before the, the atomic bomb was discovered. And he said the same thing happens with him. These people are putting together all these plausible, this is, and, and Lewis's point, talking to a, you get the essay. I'll try to find it. I'm sure it's in the public domain and put it up in Elephants and Fernseed. He's speaking to a seminary class because a professor he was complaining to said, why don't you come in and say that to my students? And he was just pointing out how these people doing higher criticism on him, his contemporaries who live in the same culture, who speak the same language and who are alive, if they're so unanimously wrong, he's really, really suspicious of people in a different language and a different culture trying to do that to people 2,000 years ago. And th that is it's a wonderful rebuke to, to this whole, basically trying to psychoanalyze Paul and trying to psycho. So, so to get back to your, to get back to your question, um, at, the, at the end of the day, I believe, I take the text on its own merits to be what it claims to be, the writing of an eyewitness. And on that basis, I come to very different conclusions than someone who thinks a community and a community wrote this with multiple revisions over 150 years. But if, if your starting assumption is, of course, then surprise, surprise, you end up reaffirming your conclusion. But uh, the next line of evidence I'd go to to show its antiquity is not just P52, but the early church quoting it. Um, and we can, we can, I mean, we can construct the New Testament without any New Testament document simply from the early church citations, simply from different people quoting it. We can, we can, Put it together. Um, so that that would be a lot. Yeah, I can. If you're interested, I can get you some books. This is a topic not everyone's. I'm fascinated by. But if, if stick around afterwards, I'll, I'll give you some stuff if you're interested in this. But okay. Any other questions, Linda? <coughs> uh oh. Something I said disagreed with the MacArthur Study Bible note. And I'm going to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> so back to um, the line where you said that he, John's ignorance, where he said he did not know who Jesus truly was. Yes. And then you were talking earlier about them being human. Yeah. Okay. So in Luke, when Elizabeth is clearly making this boisterous statement about who Mary is carrying. The isn't baby it, in the womb leaps for joy. But isn't it safe to at least think that as she's raising John before he leaves yeah. home, that she's not continuously right. speaking about that event and, and what happened and who Mary's child well, that, and is. That's why, that, so that's, and that's why I'm saying, I don't think John is saying, I had no idea who he was. It's possible John had no idea who Jesus was. Now, what you're saying is 
probably probable. Don't you think John the Baptist's parents told him about the angel visiting them, told him about the supernatural visit, told him about when you were in mommy's tummy and Auntie Mary came, you leaped for joy in my womb. I mean, you'd imagine, we don't know, but it seems reasonable enough that they'd tell him these things, which means it's entirely possible that John the Baptist, without this revelation that he refers to, knew Jesus was someone special, that knew that Jesus was someone great, so I think all he's, what I'm certain he's saying is, I did not know this is the Son of God. I did not know this is the one who baptizes the Holy Spirit. If the one who sent me told me. And you could, con- you, that's what he's saying. Is it possible John had known Jesus? It's possible. It's also possible he never laid eyes on him because he was in the, John Luke 180 says he was in the wilderness. So if you're picturing they got together for birthday parties growing up, probably not. But, but lest we push it too far, it's possible he knew that his cousin was was also supernaturally, his birth was supernaturally overseen as his was. Um, we, we don't know. We're letting John tell us what he didn't know. And what John's telling us he didn't know is, I didn't know this is the Son of God. I didn't know this is the one who baptizes the Holy Spirit. That, the one who sent me, told me. So what else he may have known or not known, I don't know. I think he limits what he didn't know to that content. Yes, no, you with me? Well, because she says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Oh, wait, before that, uh, about the Holy Spirit, that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. So that's how she knew. And that's how the baby knew. Right. The baby had the Holy Spirit from the womb. Yes. So, right, I agree that he may have not seen him physically and known what he physically looked like. He, he had at least once interacted, responded to the presence of Jesus, recognizing some of his greatness, at least in the womb, in utero. So, so John has not had zero experience with Jesus. How much in between, I don't know. But I'm letting John in the text tell me what it was he was ignorant of by what it was God filled in for him. And so what we know, he didn't know prior. He did not know until the voice told him, the one you've seen the Holy Spirit send upon, this is the one who baptizes the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have testified, this is the Son of God. So John did not know Jesus was the Holy Spirit baptizer. Jesus was the Son of God, apart from the one who sent him telling him. That's what he didn't know. Now, did he know less? Are there other things he didn't know? Quite possibly. I'm just trying to say the text narrows in what he's claiming ignorance about. Because he tells us what he didn't know and what he had to be told. And so it, it's possible he'd never laid eyes on Jesus before. It's also possible he'd seen him. He didn't know he was those two things, at the very least. Make sense? Okay. Five minutes, people. What you got? Going once. Matthew? Go, go. No, no, no. Go, go, go. Kind of related. So when you were talking about John Revelation, John the writer John, I hear a lot that people ascribe to the belief that they are two different Johns. There's John of Patmos and John the, the Apostle, and they're not the same John. So I would refer you no, I, I, I would refer you to the first message in the series where I deal with authorship. Um the I know there are people who think that. The text doesn't really allow for that. Um, there's sim- I can just tell you from translate. John's the easiest Greek in the New Testament t- to translate, um, unlike, say, Luke or Hebrews, which is the hardest. So I'm able, actually, to translate every week John. My, Hebrew, my Greek's 
rusty, but I can handle John. There's, there's a similar language style, similar word pictures, similar um, vocabulary um, show up in John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Um, I, I think simply from literary style, either somebody is really trying to impersonate John or it's the same person. Um, <coughs> church history supports this. In, in the first message, I cite um, from Eusebius and Irenaeus, who both testified to the provenance of John's gospel, that he wrote it having returned from Patmos. I mean, so these are people living in his lifetime. And again, they could be wrong. That's not scripture. People 2,000 years out probably should have a certain amount of timidity in disagreeing with eyewitnesses and people who knew him. That, that would be all my point is. But um, the, the doubts of John, and I, I don't want to put too much weight on this either, but the church, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, right? Um, and they follow me. And, and part of the reason we receive scripture, someone said, why do you, why do you receive the Bible as the word of God? I'd, I'd say along two lines, because I, the same voice that spoke the world into existence, that, that the heavens are declaring around me, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's, there's, there's communication about God's existence and his glory in the world. That same voice I hear when I read this book and the entire history of the community of Jesus followers have as well, right? So, so it would be an appeal to Jesus' sheep, have historically heard his voice in these these writings. So I do, and there's a bunch of other people with me who do as well. And the early church is unanimous on these issues. It's only in the 20th century or the late 19th century that, that sorry, I mean, a bunch of dead German neoliberals. <laughs> they, was it Revelation one of the books that was almost thrown out at the Council of Nicaea? I thought it was book? like... Esther and then there was a couple books where like we don't know if we're necessarily going to include these in the canon and then Revelation was like on the edge if I remember reading that correctly and I don't think you essays. are Eusebius has a book of the completed canon years before um, Nicaea Eusebius has a list these are received books he's a church historian um, he has a list which is identical to our list decades before Nicaea so it's not like the church, hey, you and I'll talk afterwards, we're just about out on time. But um, my, my, all my point would say is that if you, if you go back to the earliest church, there's no doubt on these things. There's, there's a consensus, which doesn't make it absolutely true. All I want to point out is all of the skepticism came up in the last 100, 150 years, as, as far as I can yeah, tell. It works for me. Which... Be a little skeptical of the skepticism is, is all I'm suggesting. And if you want to go deeper with the stuff, I can I can point to some resources oh, and stuff. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not questioning oh, no, 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 no. the authenticity. Like, these you. are things I've heard. I'm like, how, how, how respond? I, not sure. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, that's your bell, people. Godspeed. God bless. Good day.